Good evening and welcome to the Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Tim. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. This episode is about the CIA belief in and pursuit of brainwashing a human being. Defenestration is the act of throwing someone out of a window. In 1965, Gregory Bateson and Dr. John Lilly hired a young woman, Margaret Howe Lovett, to work at the reclusive Caribbean Island Laboratory in St. Thomas. Their intention was to communicate with dolphins. This was partially funded through NASA. Lilly's vision was that one day there could be a cetacean chair at the United Nations where all marine mammals would have an enlightening input into world affairs expanding our views on science, history, and world affairs. Lovett lived six days a week for months in a partially flooded home with the dolphins, in an attempt to give them enough exposure to human beings that they might learn English. Margaret gave language lessons and at times had to, um, alleviate the male dolphin's sexual urges. When they weren't finding success... The scientists began injections of LSD in hopes of expanding the minds of the dolphins. It didn't work. When we have talked about conspiracy theories in the past, it always feels like so much of the information is based on feelings. Chalk it up to the well-oiled government machine for keeping secrets as well as they do, and that's why we don't have hard proof. These feelings are usually fear and paranoia. There is some fact and connections, however, they tend to be extremely vague and are only made clear when you allow these feelings to color the facts. Fingers crossed, when over a million people who have signed up to raid Area 51 at the end of the summer breach the walls of the secretive military base, we have direct evidence of aliens. If I could afford the plane ticket, I would be there in a heartbeat. I struggle with hearing a family name like the Rothschilds and thinking that an entire family is evil. Yeah, they keep showing up, but they're just people. I mean, ridiculously rich people in a modern dynasty, but just people. Of course they're rubbing elbows with the other rich and elite, but how is a family predisposed to being evil? I think that's why they're made out to be quite literally inhuman. It's easier to understand that a human wouldn't do this So they aren't humans. They are the lizard people here to control us. I wonder how they teach their kids to continue to work and maintain the family prestige. If I was born into money, you would have to peel me out of a lazy boy every single day. Thank the gods I'm poor. Like a family can't just be evil, I think that most governments are not evil. It's just a bureaucracy that through policy and self-preservation of maintaining a career as a collective... It can do terrible things. It's a part of human nature. Not that we are evil, but the animal comes out in weird ways when we act in inhuman organizations like corporations and government. We start to think a part of this collective and forget empathy, compassion, and love. It isn't evil, it's just that we have to remove ourselves to complete the task at hand to get back to work for that shift. To make sure that that paycheck is still there next week, And just maybe, if we are lucky, in time, it might get a little bigger. The thought, well, if this was really bad, someone above me would put a stop to it, is ever-present. It's above my pay grade to worry about this. 
I worked for a couple of weeks for a cell phone company at a call center. Every few weeks, the plans would change. We would update and were encouraged to help the customer as much as we could within whatever framework we were currently working in. I don't think I'm built for an environment like that. Trainers would brag about upselling plans people wouldn't need, trying to condition us to do the same. It felt gross. When people called in, they talked to you with disdain because you were an appendage of the machine, not a human being. When I was dealing with the customer, they were becoming a problem to solve because I couldn't always give them what they wanted, or even what might have been right. I started to daydream about a cubicle farm far, far away, where they would conspire about all the new ways they could ruin my day with progressively worse plans. The person in the cube farm isn't evil, the corporation is not out to hurt anyone, but corporations are not people. The machine wants to continue to live. We rely on the machine, so that we can keep a roof over our heads. So, at times, we ask ourselves to surrender our humanity to help the machine. We are symbiotes, humanity and the soulless. It's the nature of having so many individuals attempting to coexist. At its heart, civilization is unnatural. I wouldn't give it up for anything, but being honest with yourself is kind of freeing. These moral thoughts uh, led me to discover the Milgram experiment. The Milgram experiment was an experiment on obedience to authority conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. They evaluated the readiness of males from a diverse range of occupations and varying levels of education. The experiment was to see if these men would obey an authority figure, perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. In other words, could they get these men to commit a terrible act they knew was wrong or evil? Participants were led to believe that they were assisting an unrelated experiment, in which they had to administer electric shocks to a learner. These fake electric shocks increased every time the learner got a question wrong. Eventually it got to levels that the participant had been warned would kill the learner. When pressed by an authority figure, the men would obey and administer the fatal shock had the experiment been real. The Milgram experiment found that a very high proportion of subjects would fully obey the instructions, albeit reluctantly. Milgram devised his psychological study to answer the popular question, could it be that Adolf Eichmann, an infamous, reviled Nazi party member, and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? The experiment was repeated many times around the globe, with fairly consistent results. I think that's what happened within the CIA. I am just following orders. This doesn't sit right with me, but if this is wrong, if this is going to hurt citizens, then someone above my pay grade would put a stop to it. They wouldn't be asking me to do this if it wasn't necessary. They must know something I don't. Looking in from the outside, I would like to believe that I would have the courage to say, no, it'll keep me up at night thinking, am I capable of doing this? Would I be any different or special from the hundreds of people they tested that couldn't? When pressed, would I press the button? The CIA is an intelligence organization that was formed out of a few post-World War II intelligence organizations. Many of the initial agents, infrastructure, and leadership were from the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. Post-war, there was growing tensions between America and the Soviet Union. Harry S. Truman signed an executive order, which would be the impetus to the CIA 
evolution out of agencies formed at that time. To understand this story, you have to understand the feeling at this time. There was an all-encompassing fear of the communists, of Soviet Russia, and of all of her allies. Nuclear weapons had been released on Japan to end the war, and their destructive capabilities were horrifying. It's been so long since a nuke has been dropped in anger, I don't know if we're truly capable of understanding the destructive power of something like that, or the tangible fear that one might be released above our heads. I don't think I can really believe that it'll ever happen again. I pray to the gods old and new we never do. Russia had developed nuclear bombs of their own, and now the world was capable of nuclear war and wiping out all life on Earth, between two nations that might never meet on the battlefield. The Cold War started as soon as World War II ended. This war was a war of a way of life. Core beliefs and how our everyday lives should be led. How the everyday citizen can lead their life and what they can expect from it. If they keep their heads down and work hard. I don't mean to keep hammering this point home, but this is a post-World War II world. The Nazi party went largely unchecked for years. The concentration camps weren't discovered until the end of the war. These horrors were visited upon human beings. Every loss, every sacrifice couldn't be made in vain. It had to matter. So challenging a way of life that seemed wrong was morally imperative. The character of the world had changed. Between 1950 to 1953, the American military was involved in a dispute between North Korea and South Korea. It was considered a proxy war with the North being supported by the Communist bloc of China and the Soviet Union, and the South being supported by the United Nations. This three-year bloody conflict led to over a million wounded between combatants, and over 500,000 killed in action. An estimated 2.5 million civilians were killed or wounded. At the end of this conflict, there was an exchange of prisoners of war. The United Nations forces wanted to win hearts and minds, so a part of the armistice, they offered asylum to those that would not want to return to their home countries and communism. It was in a sense a calculated insult, because from the minds of the West... Who'd want to return to communism? An estimated 20,000 Chinese and North Koreans defected to the West. In unsanitary conditions, lack of food, no medicine, who would choose to stay? Well, 23 American soldiers did. This is what sparked serious concern from the American side of brainwashing. The released soldiers told stories of indoctrination sessions held by the Chinese-run POW camps. The men that stayed recited propaganda about the use of germ warfare and other offenses of the American and United Nations forces. Posing for pictures in front of the Chinese news cameras, they took a stand for peace, against racism, against capitalism, and McCarthyism. Americans have a, a presence to them. I don't mean that as a negative thing, it's, it's not an insult. But you know when you're in the room with one. The idea that Americans would turn against the West was unthinkable. It didn't make any sense. American soldiers wouldn't do that. These were good, wholesome, all-American boys. What could have happened to these men to make them turn against their very way of life? An institutional theory was formed. The Soviets had perfected a brainwashing technique, and America had to catch up. Now that we have a little bit of the why, let's take a step back and look at the how. At the end of World War II, Operation Paperclip was conducted. 
Operation Paperclip was an action undertaken by the American government. They took Nazi members and leadership and moved them into America under new identities. Over 1,600 German scientists, engineers, technicians, and their families were brought in to work within the American military scientific system and NASA. The space agency was using their expertise from the V-2 rocket program to stay competitive during the space race. Operation Paperclip was so named because of the action of taking a Nazi's file, moving the paperclip with a photo, to a new one. Many of these Nazis had been a part of the experiments that were performed on human beings during the Holocaust. The Nuremberg Code had been formed in the fallout of the Holocaust and what the monstrous crimes these men had committed to men, women, and children. Referring to them as human beings leaves a sick, acidy taste in my mouth. These loathsome individuals advance science and technology. The knowledge they gained through their crimes ripples out. It is something we have to accept. We built upon the knowledge they gained. At its core, the Nuremberg Code was that a person had to give consent voluntarily, that they had to give informed consent to an experiment. A volunteer that had not been properly taught and or could not fully comprehend what was going to happen to them was not a volunteer, but a victim. The code has 10 tenets. They're simple, well-written, and come from a place of terrible sadness. I don't feel comfortable that within a lifetime of my time on Earth, something so obvious had to be written. These next points of the code are what stands out to me about how the CIA broke the Nuremberg Code, almost before the ink was even dry. The experiment should benefit the good of society, unprocurable by other methods or means of study, and not random and unnecessary in nature. The experiment should be so conducted to avoid all unnecessary physical and mental suffering. Proper preparation should be made and adequate facilities provided to protect the subjects against even the remote possibility of injury, disability, or death. The experiment should be conducted only by scientifically qualified persons. The highest degree of skill and care should be required through all stages of the experiment, of those who conduct or engage in the experiment. During the course of the experiment, the human subject should be at liberty to bring the experiment to an end. During the course of the experiment, the scientist in charge must be prepared to terminate the experiment at any stage. The brainwashing or mind control program was performed by the CIA in partnership with the scientific community of the American military, including the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories. It started as Project Artichoke, and before that, it was Project Bluebird. Project Artichoke started in 1951. The CIA wanted to know if a human being could be involuntarily made to perform an act of attempted assassination. The Americans were desperate to catch up with the Soviets. Their stance was that they didn't want the means to employ brainwashing, but had to find a way to defend against it. At least, that's what they said. They had to try as many avenues as possible to find out how they were doing this. Throw enough against the wall and see what sticks. Project Artichoke studied hypnosis, forced morphine addiction, and forced withdrawal, as well as the use of experimental hallucinogens like LSD, acid. These methods also had to have the secondary condition of causing amnesia to protect the information if an agent was captured. A memo dated January 1952 stated, 
Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will, and even against the fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? They wanted someone that they could send in against their will to kill another human being, even if that meant they would be killed in the act of doing so. That is frightening. A CIA report stated that if hypnosis succeeded, assassins could be created to assassinate a prominent redacted politician, or if necessary, an American official. Artichoke led to MKUltra and its subsequent research projects. LSD was seen as having the most potential. As we go down this rabbit hole, remember this all comes from the CIA's own documentation, not conspiracy theory. MKUltra is the most recognizable names of these projects. I'll give it this, it does sound very cool, and I believe within the last year a new strain of cannabis has been named after it. The CIA named it after their technical services staff, which I assume is like their IT department. And Ultra had been used during World War II as the most secret classification in the intelligence network. The objectives were similar in scope as Project Artichoke. Experiment on human subjects, both legally and illegally, to identify and develop drugs and procedures to be used in interrogations. In other words, to weaken the subject and force confessions through mind control. To have means to blackmail or embarrass enemy leadership. MKUltra was officially sanctioned in 1953 and shut down officially, at least, in 1973. This project was headed by Sidney Gottlieb. How could the CIA reproduce what the Korean, Chinese, and Soviet forces did to American soldiers? No door could be closed because Pandora's box had already been opened by the enemy. Here's a list of various goals of MKUltra. Drugs which could make the subject appear foolish or crazy so as to permanently discredit them in the eyes of the public. Drugs that could cause permanent memory loss and brain damage. Drugs that can induce amnesia in subjects. Drugs that would break down the ego and induce mental dependency on others. Drugs that would lower a person's ambition. Drugs that made it impossible for people to lie. Drugs which increase the efficiency of mental activity and perception. There are other lists with more detailed goals, including one where they wanted to have a knockout drug in cigarettes that could produce amnesia. I just felt like that was cool enough to know. I think about all the ways these things can be used in an interrogation. This isn't a spy movie, this is real life, and their cavalier look at a human life is frightening. To the CIA, did the ends justify the means? How many innocent people were worth sacrificing on the altar of the greater good to protect the whole would have been too many. All documents were ordered by the then CIA director Richard Helms to be destroyed after the fallout from Watergate. When we talked about the government not being evil but individuals are, this is what I'm talking about. Not because they discovered anything of use, not because they needed to protect their MK Ultra sleeper agents and programs. No, the CIA director just knew that someone might go to jail. And more than that, the government might get sued. 
Best get rid of the evidence so they wouldn't be forced to make it right by the lives they destroyed. In 1977, a Freedom of Information Act request unearthed the cache of 20,000 documents that were misfiled, and therefore never destroyed. Investigations began in 1975 with the Church and Rockefeller Commissions investigating CIA activities. The 1976 Church Commission found that in the MK Delta program, drugs were used primarily as an aid to interrogations, but MK Ultra, MK Delta materials were also used for harassment, discrediting, or disabling purposes. In December of 2018, documents surfaced from the MK Ultra experiments that said six dogs were made to run, turn, and stop via remote control and brain implants. In the summer of 1975, Sidney Gottlieb, who had retired from the CIA two years previously, was interviewed by the committee. Sidney Gottlieb, the head of the project, claimed to have very little recollection of the activities of MKUltra. Either he was a terrible boss or a sociopath that didn't care about the damage he had done, since it was under orders. There's evidence that operations were conducted globally to aid in these initiatives. Most of their operations, however, were focused at home, experimenting on both knowing and unknowing American and Canadian citizens. There was a huge target painted on vulnerable persons like mental patients, addicts, prisoners, and wards of the state that were never given knowledge of the acts being performed on them. There was 80 institutions where research took place and an estimated 150 sub-projects. We'll never know because of how much of the documentation was destroyed. Colleges, universities, prisons, pharmaceutical companies, and hospitals. Oftentimes, the CIA was using front organizations to communicate with these institutions, offering grants for research they saw as promising for their own ends. It was only on rare occasion was anyone aware that they were working for the CIA. Estimated funding for MK Ultra was 10 million US. Adjusted for inflation, that'd be around 87 million dollars. The story goes that at first everyone in technical services tried LSD, so that they would have a baseline of what the effects were. This is a moment. A moment to put yourself into the, someone else's shoes. At this moment in time, the CIA was the only ones to have LSD. It had been created in a lab in Switzerland and tightly controlled after its psychedelic properties were discovered. We've seen acid trips depicted in movies. TV shows talk about it. Vivid descriptions are in books. Even if you, like me, have never taken acid, we have an inkling of what it is. We have heard the music. We've seen the art it inspired. These straight-laced old dudes would have absolutely no frame of reference for what they were messing around with. Yeah, no doubt they could drink you under the table, but hallucinogens? Many of these men were veterans of a world war, so they had seen some terrible things. What do you think they saw when they were tripping? A typical experiment at this early stage involved two people in a room. They were tasked with observing each other and taking notes. This would go on for hours. One would take the acid, trip, come down, then the other would take their dose. Dr. Gottlieb wanted this not only to be available in interrogation efforts, 
but he wanted it for covert missions. Gottlieb thought that he could discredit an enemy high-ranking official conducting meetings or giving speeches by surreptitiously dosing them. So, they had begun to dose people around the office without their knowledge to understand how it would work on people who were unaware of what was happening. It got to the point within the CIA that surprise acid trips became an occupational hazard among operatives. Adverse reactions were common. One agent had a psychotic episode. He was found running across Washington seeing monsters in every car passing him. Security personnel became concerned that agents in the TSS were becoming unhinged due to their frequent LSD use. And matters came to a head when a plot to spike the punch bowl at the annual CIA Christmas party was revealed. In a memo, officials made it clear that LSD could very well produce serious insanity for periods of 8 to 18 hours, and possibly for longer, and that CIA officials strongly opposed any sort of LSD testing in the Christmas punch bowls usually present at Christmas office parties. These and many more stories you will hear during the shows feels like it's just the tip of what we could know about. I wonder what amazing stories are hidden with the agents of this time. What bad trips and pranks did they pull off? It makes me think of the Kenny vs. Spenny episode where Kenny doses Spenny with acid and Spenny is found running around downtown Toronto with a squid tied to his head. I've thrown a lot of information at you. And we're only at the start of it. This is all less than 10 years after the Nuremberg Code was penned and we understood what the Nazi experimentation on human beings did. Seven volunteers from a Kentucky prison were given LSD for 77 days. Not wanting to rest on that, they took a mental patient from the same state and administered LSD for 174 straight days. It makes my skin crawl to think what these people must have went through. How little of their minds would be left after a torture like that. They weren't even microdosing people either. They were giving massive hits of acids considered many times a safe dose. Over time, the idea that LSD was going to be the key to all this started to fade. By 1962, the CIA and the Army developed super hallucinogens. They experimented with heroin morphine, temazepam, mescaline, psilocybin, scolopamine, cannabis, alcohol, and sodium pentothal. One of the other experiments was the intravenous administration of a barbiturate into one arm and an amphetamine into the other. The barbiturates were released into the person first, and as soon as the person began to fall asleep, the amphetamines were released. The person would begin babbling incoherently. Sometimes it was possible to ask questions and get useful answers. Both sober and drug-aided experimentation with hypnosis also was conducted. The CIA wanted to learn if they could introduce hypnotically induced anxieties, increase the ability to learn and recall complex written instructions, and how well they could trick a polygraph. To observe and recall complex arrangements of physical objects, what kind of personalities were more susceptible? And could they give someone amnesia and forget a torture? 
Between 1957 and 1964, the barbaric actions of a British psychiatrist, Donald Ewan Cameron, was unleashed upon Canada. This piece of human trash was experimenting with what he called psychic driving and depatterning. Cameron wanted to correct schizophrenia by erasing existing memories and reprogramming the psyche. He worked out of a Montreal psychiatric institute that was associated with McGill University, the Allen Memorial Institute. His research was funded through a front organization, so it is believed that Cameron did not know he was being funded by the CIA. The funding for his program was around $69,000 a year, which translates to about 558000 U.S. today. It's scary if Cameron didn't realize this is where the money was coming from, because his work would ultimately lay the framework for the CIA's current torture techniques. An outside government saw what he was doing and recognized he was actively pursuing a means to destroy and rebuild a human mind, and everyone wanted to see the results of the mad scientist, so they let him continue to play around with others' lives. He experimented with LSD, paralytic drugs, electroshock therapy at 30 to 40 levels higher than anyone else. He would put people into comas for weeks at a time. One case, the induced coma was listed at three months. While this was happening, he was playing tape loops of noise or simple repetitive statements for 16 hours a day. At first, negative messages about their inadequacies and then positive ones. In some cases, these messages were repeated over a half million times. When his victims weren't listening to the statements closely enough, he put speakers into football helmets and locked them onto their heads. The auditory abuse drove them to slamming their heads against the wall. Subjects of the experiments were often patients that had entered the institute for minor problems. Anxiety disorders, postpartum depression, and menopausal women were amongst his favored victims. Many had permanent effects from his actions. These victims became incontinent, had amnesia, forgetting how to talk, forgetting their families, and even starting to believe that interrogators were their parents. A lot of that seems to add up with the CIA's goals for MKUltra, doesn't it? Cameron was the first chairman of the World Psychiatric Association. He was the president of American and Canadian Psychiatric Associations. Cameron was also a member of the Nuremberg Medical Tribunal from 1946 to 1947. I wonder if he had gotten any of his ideas from listening to Joseph Mengele and his assistants list their horrors to the court. Was he disgusted or excited at the possibilities? The University of McGill, the Canadian government, and the CIA take no responsibilities for his actions. In his obituaries, he is remembered fondly. A group of Canadian citizens, Cameron's victims, tried to sue the CIA, but failed. Came to light the Canadian government was fully aware of their actions. The Canadian government paid out 127 of his victims $100,000. What the Canadian government did was evil. What Cameron did was evil. He was a single person acting on a twisted, dark soul. The government of Canada made a choice colored by many factors. Trade, military intelligence, goodwill, cooperation, fear of the communists. 
But this government is made up of individuals. And individuals within passed the buck around and something like this happened. If this was bad, someone above me would put a stop to it. I got a pension and a couple more years to retirement. No need to rock the boat. No one probably feels directly responsible either. I worked there, but I didn't do it. I didn't fund the man. No one person tried to hide it. They just ignored it. Until they were caught. The government forces all people getting a settlement to sign non-disclosure agreements so that more victims won't look for a payout. There are stringent rules on how tortured you must be and when you were tortured to gain compensation. I wonder how many governmental employees have sleepless nights knowing what was happening or what had already transpired. Did anyone think to themselves, better not say anything or they might ask for money? Individual human beings saw people suffering because of someone else's actions and did nothing. Saw their families suffer because of their inaction, but it wasn't their problem. No one can act as an individual on behalf of the government to correct a tragic judgment call. But human beings had to get up, take their kids to hockey practice, or have a barbecue with neighbors, and know that they had failed to protect their own people. Was it more important to have the information just in case the Americans found a way to control sleeper agents? So that Canada could also have this unforgivable power? Cameron died in 1967 hiking. His family destroyed his personal records after his death. I wonder how much they knew about what he had done. Are they ashamed? To this day, neither the CIA nor the Canadian government has apologized for its role in the experiments. In the early 1990s, the federal government provided compensation to 77 victims, but turned down more than 250 because they weren't tortured enough applied too late, or because they couldn't produce medical records. Good job, Canada. President Gerald Ford in 1976 issued the first executive order on intelligence activities, which, among other things, prohibited experimentation with drugs on human subjects, except with informed consent, in writing and witnessed by a disinterested party of each such human subject, and in accordance with the guidelines issued by the National Commission. Subsequent orders by the President Carter and Reagan expanded the directive to apply to any human experimentation. It's really sad it had to be said in the first place in Nuremberg, but redefined and repeated and said more directly to drive it home to these people is just absolutely horrifying. In November of 1953, Frank Olson allegedly committed suicide by jumping out of a window. Frank Olson was a United States Army biochemist and biological weapons researcher. He was given a dose of LSD without his knowledge or consent until after the drug had begun taking effect. After this incident, a CIA doctor was assigned to monitor Olson. The doctor claimed that he was asleep in their two-bed New York City hotel room when Olson exited the window and fell 13 stories to his death. Olson's death was described as a suicide that had occurred during a severe psychotic episode. The Olson family believes that the CIA murdered Frank. 
He was angry after his LSD experience and was morally opposed to working with members of Operation Paperclip on researching biological warfare. In 1975, Olson's family received a $750,000 settlement from the U.S. government and a formal apology from President Gerald Ford and CIA Director William Colby. Though their apologies were limited to informed consent issues concerning Olson's ingestion of LSD, not because their actions led to his death. Olson's body was exhumed in 1994. Cranial injuries indicated that Olson had been knocked unconscious before he exited the window. The medical examiner determined Olson's death a homicide. The CIA killed Frank Olson because he was not okay with breaking the Nuremberg Code, because he was not okay working on weapons with Nazis. Wayne Ritchie, a veteran of the Marine Corps and a former United States Marshal, after hearing about MK Ultra in 1990, alleged the CIA laced his food or drink with LSD at a 1957 Christmas party. Ritchie began to act erratically and felt an overwhelming sense of anxiety and worthlessness. After having an argument with his girlfriend in which she said she wanted to move away to San Francisco, Richie armed himself with his government-issued service revolvers and tried to get the money for a plane ticket by robbing a bar. During the robbery attempt, someone at the bar knocked Richie out, and by the time he regained consciousness, police officers were already there to arrest him. He was fined $500 and lost his job. While the government admitted it was, at that time, drugging people without their consent, U.S. District Judge Marilyn Hall Patel found that Ritchie could not prove he was one of the victims of MKUltra or that LSD caused his robbery attempt and dismissed the case. Ira Feldman, a CIA agent involved in the MKUltra program, explained the manner in which he observed the unknowing citizens he had drugged with LSD. And I quote, You just sit back and let them worry, like this nitwit Richie. He would go on to acknowledge that Richie's dosage was a full head, and that Richie was targeted because he, quote, deserved to suffer. The court found that although Feldman made several comments in his deposition suggesting that he was involved in drugging Richie, the district court's determination that Richie did not prove Feldman's involvement is not clearly erroneous. Feldman may have been lying to provoke the defense counsel, trying to be funny, or simply speaking imprecisely when he made purported admissions. Richie's lawyer asked no follow-up questions that might have elicited more detail about Feldman's vague assertions. When a CIA agent admits to drugging someone, how is that not a confession? And the list goes on of other people that were dosed with LSD, like Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, volunteered for the MKUltra experiments involving LSD and other psychedelic drugs at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Menlo Park, while he was a student at the nearby Stanford University. Kesey's experiment, while under the influence with LSD, inspired him to promote the drug outside the context of the whole MKUltra experiments, which influenced the early development of hippie culture. Kesey did not believe that the project was sponsored by the CIA until decades later. 
he was quoted once as saying that the testing wasn't being done to try to cure insane people, which is what we thought. It was being done to try to make people insane, to weaken people, and to be able to put them under the control of interrogators. While still undergoing the CIA testing, Kesey took a job at the project facility because as an employee, it gave him access to several experimental drugs. Kesey's friends and others were able to make LSD on their own after the testing. Kesey acknowledged the government had the best LSD around, saying, The homemade LSD never was anywhere as good as the good government stuff. That's the government. The CIA always has the best stuff. Robert Hunter is an American lyricist, singer-songwriter, best known for his association with Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. Hunter was an early volunteer of MKUltra, and he was a test subject, like Kesey, at Stanford University. Stanford test subjects were paid to take LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline, then report on their experiences. These experiences were creatively formative for Hunter. Hunter describes his experience in this next paragraph, but I'm going to warn you, it, it is disconnected at best. So here it goes. Sit back, picture yourself, swooping up a shell of purple, with foam crests of crystal drop soft nigh, they fall onto the sea of morning creep very softly mist, and sort of cascade tinkly bell-like. Must I take you by the hand ever so slowly type, and then conglomerate? Suddenly, into a peal of silver, vibrant, uncomprehendingly, blood-singingly, joyously resounding bells. By my faith, if this be insanity, then for the love of God, permit me to remain insane. Boston mobster James Whitey Bulger alleged that he had been subjected to weekly injections of LSD and subsequent testing while in prison in Atlanta in 1957. He considered killing the doctor responsible when he left prison a Dr. Carl Pfeiffer, but ultimately let it go. Bolger's anxiety was compounded by his inability to ask for help or disclose what he was experiencing, as he feared that telling anyone of his visual and auditory hallucinations would lead to lifelong commitment in an insane asylum. The effects of LSD on Bolger were such that the mobster reflected on the irony of his situation in his notebook, writing... I was in prison for committing a crime and feel they committed a worse crime on me. Of another experience, he wrote eight convicts in a panic and paranoid state. Total loss of appetite, hallucinating, the room would change shapes, hours of paranoia, feeling violent. We experienced horrible periods of living nightmares and even blood coming out of the walls. Guys turning to skeletons in front of me. I saw a camera change into the head of a dog. I, I felt like I was going insane. Harold Blauer was a professional tennis player who was considered one of the greatest tennis players of all time, following about a depression that was at least partially caused by his recent divorce. Blauer checked himself into the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He was diagnosed as a pseudo-neurotic schizophrenic. He checked in in early December 1952, and he would be dead just over a month later. 
Though he was improving and was scheduled for release from the Institute, doctors began treating Blauer with a series of injections that, as it turned out, were a derivative of mescaline. These injections were administered through some of the doctors had no idea what they were giving him, with Dr. James Cattell later telling investigators, We didn't know whether it was dog piss or what it was we were giving him. Dr. Cattell was acting on a classified agreement between the Institute and the Army Chemical Corps to test various chemicals for potential use in warfare, and one of the injections given to Blauer ultimately killed him. There was an extensive cover-up, and not until 1975 did the government finally admit to Blauer's family that had injected him with the mescaline derivative that caused his death. In 1987, the family sued the government for its involvement and subsequent cover-up, winning a $700,000 judgment. Dr. Paul Hotch, a CIA consultant on the MKUltra project, worked at the same institute. Though the Army technically funded the experimentation conducted by the Institute, Blauer's death is often considered one of the casualties of MKUltra due to the involvement of Dr. Hotch, a driving force behind the project who eventually rose to the position of Commissioner of Mental Hygiene for the state of New York. Ted Kaczynski was a domestic terrorist known as the Unabomber. He was a subject of a voluntary psychological study alleged by some sources to have been a part of the MK Ultra program. As a sophomore at Harvard, Kaczynski participated in a study described by author Alton Chase as a purposely brutalizing psychological experiment, led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. In total, Kaczynski spent 200 hours as a part of the study. Ruth Kelly a singer and waitress at a San Francisco bar, Ruth Kelly was unknowingly given LSD before performing on stage. George H. White, a veteran of the U.S. Bureau of Narcotics who headed up a part of the MKUltra program called Operation Midnight Climax, gross, found Kelly attractive but resistant to his advances. So either he or one of his men dosed her with LSD before her performance. Liz Evans? San Francisco prostitute who worked with White as a part of Operation Climax corroborated the story saying that White drugged a really pretty blonde-haired waitress at the Black Sheep Bar. Her name was Ruth and George wanted her to take part in things but she had no interest. There are many other stories and victims but uh, I think that kind of covers a huge range of what they had done. Um, I'm going to list off now various projects and sub-projects and the different evolutions of MKUltra. Uh, in 1964, MK Search was started as a continuation of MKUltra, which was divided into MK Often and MK Chickwit. MK Chickwit was to identify new drug developments in Europe and Asia and to obtain information and samples. MK often was, was dealing with testing and transmissity and behavioral effects of drugs and animals and ultimately humans. Operation Midnight Climax uh, was when the CIA set up several brothels within agency safe houses in San Francisco and New York to obtain a selection of men who would be too embarrassed to talk about the events. The men were picked up by prostitutes and brought back, then dosed with LSD. 
The brothels were equipped with one-way mirrors, and the sessions were filmed and audio recorded for leading viewing and study. George H. White, the would-be rapist from earlier, had decorated the brothels with French can-can dancers and flowers and lush red bedroom curtains hung over the windows. I mean, what a cheesy version of sexy. White hired a selection of prostitutes that received money and promises that he would intercede when they ran into trouble with the law. The objectives changed over the course of the operation to how could sex workers be used to extract secrets? What protocols could be used to lure, drug, embarrass a political official so that they can be controlled or even turned? What's the standard operating procedure for sexual blackmail? MK Delta was a sub-project that was meant as oversight for the use of MK Ultra materials and methods abroad. It's alleged that MK Naomi was a sub-project of MK Delta, and it was more or less just the international edition of MK Ultra. How could the methods developed in MK Ultra be tested on a large scale? A 1967 CIA memo, which was uncovered by the Church Committee, was evidence of at least three covert techniques for attacking and poisoning crops that had been examined under field conditions. There is a conspiracy theory about the little village of Pont Saint-Esprit, a little town in the south of France. One day, everybody in this village woke up and they went insane. There was a mass poisoning caused by Aragot, a type of fungus that has a psychedelic magic mushroom kind of effect. 250 people felt the effects. Five people died. 32 people were committed to mental institutions. Could this have been a part of MK Naomi? Frank Olson was the man killed by the CIA after being dosed. He was an engineer involved in creating aerosol delivery systems for the military's biological warfare division. Could Olson's work have been used as a delivery mechanism of LSD or other MK substances into the town of Pont Saint-Esprit? His discomfort with working with Nazi scientists who apprenticed at death camps to develop a means to drive an innocent town insane may have been what got Frank Olson killed. The man died a hero. At least that isn't a question. I have to say that this is just a conspiracy theory. Um, Ergot poisoning is a logical cover story, as it's been tossed around as possible reasoning for various witch hunts, including the Salem witch trials, for decades. George H. White, the director of Operation Midnight Climax, wrote in a letter to Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, the overall director of the MK Ultra program. I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? The man had gone insane. Of course, conspiracy theorists believe testing and development continues today. Most suggest that brainwashing 
is impossible for an entire population, so the governmental they have perfected the individual brainwashing technique. They say that these individuals are essentially sleeper agents. They point to the news as evidence. It seems to be any time a sensitive person to the government is in trouble, or a controversial piece of legislation needs to get passed through, a big distraction happens. And all people in news can talk about or dedicate its attention to is a campaign of, oh, look over there. It can be anything from Britney Spears had a meltdown and cut off her hair, or, oh, this Disney star is doing drugs and partying, or a mass shooting. Conspiracy theorists say that these agents of the New World Order are triggered long after the headlines are written for the best, most psychological effect. Ugh. And after this episode, conspiracy theories make a lot more sense now. If you have a government employee actively trying to scoop out the soul of a human being, then what is off the table? It doesn't sound as terrible if you think that all of this might be used on one person, one enemy, spy, or agent, or citizen. It's an enemy, and it's just one person. Let's say, on a Friday night, a secretary at an enemy office is kidnapped, and over the course of the weekend is tortured and programmed to be triggered on Monday and killed her boss. She forgets she was tortured. She forgets she killed him. Kind of a closed loop. We are human beings, and we all know that after one success, we don't shut up shop. The governmental machine put a lot of money into MKUltra. We gotta see a return, or the bean counters in Washington won't be happy. What's next? Reprogramming your own soldiers? What's next? Reprogramming your own soldiers? These are fathers and mothers who believe in their nation, of the mission, and the dignity of the armed forces. They're great, but humanity and conscience can get in the way occasionally. Let's scoop that out while they're our property, and reinstall it when they retire. Too many politicians aren't acting in the best interest of funding the CIA. Let's make our own candidate. Gotta protect your pension. Just because the winds of change are stirring doesn't mean you can allow that to impact your take-home wage. Open Pandora's box, no matter how restrained and well-meaning you are, means nothing to the guy in the next cubicle. Nothing to your replacement when you retire. Spice that up with the knowledge that these generals hang out with the rich right-wingers at the Bohemian Grove, sending their kids at their recommendation to the same school, Worshipping at the feet of an owl, destroying worldly cares, and listening to speeches about how they want to influence their nation and the world into a direction they find beneficial? It's scary. But more than likely, the more extreme tales of brainwashing was just propaganda. The CIA wanted to distract from developing methods to torture and break down a human being to its core efficiently and quickly. Want to hear something messed up? I still picture us as the good guys. All of this and more, and I still want to believe that the CIA or Canada CSIS, Canadian Security Intelligence Services, is necessary. All of this and so much more, and I still believe that 
the CIA or in Canada, CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Services, are made up of good people. That they're necessary. That they aren't evil and want to protect human life. Maybe I am naive. And I'm not suggesting they don't need oversight. But I hope this lesson is taught at their spy schools. Remind every prospective agent every morning the institution has had their honor tainted by this project and others. MK Ultra had so much potential for evil. How can we never let history repeat itself? The spirit of the world has a way of healing itself. From something terrible came the world we know today. The CIA brought LSD and magic mushrooms into the United States of America. During the illegal testing at universities, the MK Ultra program piqued the curiosity of various individuals who loved their experiences. Of course, eventually these drugs may have trickled in, but their wide-ranging testing happened to get to the right people across the country at the same time. Those people that enjoyed the experience then introduced the drugs to many of their friends who showed their friends, who decided to cultivate the mushrooms on their own or recreating the chemistry for their own acid, and all of this coinciding with the beginning of Vietnam. The CIA created the counterculture. Through that counterculture, we were gifted amazing music that spread messages of the free love movement, made people pay attention and support the civil rights movements. The CIA created hippies. We are gifted the world we currently have, for better or for worse, because of this evil. What I'm trying to say is that if you enjoy magic mushrooms or acid, look deep into your Google Home or Amazon Echo, and with love and affection, thank the agent listening. Thank you, listener. And don't forget to owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. Well, 23 American soldiers did. This is what sparked serious concern from the American side of brainwashing. The released soldiers told stories of indoctrination sessions held by the Chinese-run POW camps. The men that stayed recited propaganda about the use of germ warfare and other offenses of the American and United Nation forces. Posing for pictures in front of the Chinese news cameras, they took a stand for peace, against racism, against capitalism, and McCarthyism. It would later come to light that these men were informants and betrayed their people in camps and were afraid to return. They were given educations and jobs in China. The first two to leave a few days after the news conference were given lengthy sentences and embarrassed publicly. A few months later, others wanted to leave and the Chinese government did not stop them. When they returned, they discovered they had been accidentally dishonorably discharged from the military, which meant they were owed back pay from the time in confinement and could not be charged with any offense. This news reached the other turncoats and most of them returned. All except for John Rodell Dunn. But that's a story for another time. Good job, Canada. Canada is my country, and I love this nation, but this story shames me. 
quite a bit. Because it's an example of every other failure that we've never apologized for or tried to make right because we're afraid of having to pay those people out. It took decades to apologize for the residential schools and other atrocities. Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over is a Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew Over is a Cuckoo's Nest, yeah. His name was Ken Kesey. <laughs> Take it easy, Ken Kesey. <laughs>